think in this world, uh, you always have um, different identities fighting with each other. I always had the identity of a Latina born in America, also as just this girl with crazy dreams. I think it's hard to find a place where all of those identities are welcomed and appreciated and loved. We're sitting in East Charlotte, which is one of the most diverse areas in our city. We have a lot of students in our programs that are first-generation immigrant families from Latin America, largely Mexico and El Salvador, Honduras. I think to feel welcomed is to be loved, um, not just for a part of you, but for all of you. And I think at Urban Promise, we get that. Our mission at Urban Promise is to provide Charlotte's children and youth with the academic, spiritual, and social development they need to become Christian leaders determined to restore their communities. And there's really three parts to our vision. To reach a child, raise a leader, restore community. We reach out to kindergarten through eighth grade students that attend holistic after-school and summer programs that are rooted in three neighborhood sites around the city. As those students move into high school, they are empowered and employed as street leaders, and they are counselors, mentors, role models for all of the younger students that attend our programs. And then we invite those street leaders to be servant leaders long-term uh, in our city. I've heard a lot, a lot of our students and street leaders say that Urban Promise is a home to them. I don't take that lightly. One thing is to have somewhere to live and another thing is to have a place where you receive emotional connection, um, spiritual guidance, and just care for who they are. When you invest in Urban Promise, you're investing in a couple things. You're helping our street leaders right now grow in their leadership, grow in their faith. But I think in an even deeper way, you're investing in the future leaders that our city needs. You are creating this pipeline of servant leaders that care not only about their own achievement, but about creating an equitable, just, hope-filled city for all of us. We should care as people, but especially as followers of Jesus, that every child in our community has equal access to opportunity to succeed and to, to live um, a full and abundant life. Well, good morning, New City Church. Great to see all of you here today. For those of you joining us online, we're grateful to have you as well for worship. The, the video you just saw is of our partner, our dear partners, Urban Promise. We've been partnering with Urban Promise for many years. And as Jimmy uh, so aptly said, you know, their, their purpose, which is really our purpose, is to bring gospel renewal to our city and world. And specifically the way that Urban Promise does that is to reach children and to raise them up as leaders, and they do such an incredible job of that, ultimately to restore community, our community, the city of Charlotte. And so we wanted to highlight that partnership today as we begin our Christmas series, because we're gonna be collecting a Christmas serve offering, and that collection's gonna happen all throughout the month of December online, and specifically uh, on Christmas Eve across all of our campuses, we'll be collecting an offering, and every single dollar that's given on Christmas Eve, not only at the South Park campus, Matthews, Ottawa campuses, but also online is gonna go uh, to our, our serve partners here in the city, specifically Urban Promise. And next week you'll hear from for Congregations for Kids, another one of our great partners, and then uh, Urban uh, Ministries here in our city that does an incredible work. So, so three local partners will be
be the beneficiary of, of our Christmas serve offering. And just want to encourage you on the front end here to pray about what God would have you, uh, have your family to give to our serve offering. Again, every single dollar that's given is not, not going to stay at New City. It's going to be given away into our city uh, to further God's kingdom here in our community. So I want to encourage you to, to pray about that. And one of the ways that you can give, as I mentioned, is online. And you can do so at a website that we've created specifically for Christmas here at New City Church. And it's called Christmas at New City. Very creative. Christmas at New City us. And you can see that video as well as the other videos that we'll be rolling throughout the, the month of December highlighting our, our, our local serve partners that are going to benefit from the offering. You can also find the Advent Guide that we've been walking through together as a church family. We're in week two uh, starting today. I want to encourage you, if you haven't done so, to download the Advent Guide, uh, share it with your friends, family. You can gather together, open up the scriptures uh, share the devotional prayer, uh, light a candle, and celebrate this special Advent season. And you can also, on the website, find Christmas Eve service times. So just to say, our Matthews campus is going to start at 1 o'clock, and they'll have a 3 o'clock service and a 5 o'clock, so 1, 3, and 5 at Matthews. Our South Park campus will be 2, 4, and 6, and then we'll have an online service only at 7 o'clock. And then our Ottawa campus will be at 4 o'clock. So we'll have a 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7 service. Uh, but it'll be divided out on our campuses, 1, 3, and 5 at Matthews, 2, 4, and 6 at South Park, 4 at Ottawild, and then 7 o'clock online only. So lots of opportunities for our church family to come together and worship on Christmas Eve. But we're also creating worship experiences, not only for our church family, but for your friends and family to come and gather with us on this special Christmas Eve. So I want to encourage you to be praying about someone in your circle that you can invite to Christmas Eve worship. So many people say time and time again when they're asked, people who don't go to church regularly, say, if one thing happened, we would come to church. You know what that one thing is? If a trusted friend or family member would invite us. If a trusted friend or family member would invite us, we would come to church. So I want to encourage you, New City, to think about the people in your neighborhoods, the people in your families, uh, people who are around you in the office place who would want to come for Christmas Eve. And we've created all these services, not only for our family here at New City, but for your extended uh, circles of influence to come and to worship together. And I want you to use these words, okay? These four words. Come sit with me. Come sit with me. Not, not just a, hey, here's our service times, you can check it out if you want to. Come and sit with me. We'll go in together. I'll help you navigate through the church world. Church can be intimidating for people. There's a lot of people who are just starting to attend church. People on our campuses this weekend, that this is their first time coming to a worship experience at a church. Their first time. There's a lot of folks who will be returning to church this Christmas Eve. Say, come sit with me and, and I'll help you. We'll experience worship together. We'll worship Christ together. So be praying about someone that you can invite Christmas Eve uh, here at New City to worship with us. And again, check out the website, christmasatnewcity.us, for all the information on our, our serve partners that are going to be beneficiaries of the offering, for the Advent Guide, for worship times on Christmas Eve. Let's pray together. Jesus, would you be high and lifted up today? in our worship, through the preaching of your word, through our fellowship and community with one another, would you be lifted up, Jesus? And would you draw all people to yourself? Your word is a lamp unto our feet. It's a light unto our path. And we pray that it would be so again for us today. Would you speak now to each of our hearts 
and we'll give you the glory for it. In Christ's name, amen. amen. The miracle worker is a story of incredible resolve to overcome all obstacles in order to communicate. The miracle worker captures the story of Helen Keller and Annie Sullivan. Helen Keller, of course, contracted an illness that left her deaf and blind and mute at the young age of two years old. Can you imagine? Annie Sullivan was partially blind herself. And Annie was brought into the Keller household when Helen was some seven years old to teach her to communicate, to try to reach her in her world of loneliness and darkness. Helen Keller's brother, James, encouraged Annie to quit several times. In fact, Helen's own parents said, it's impossible. We've tried to communicate with her. We can't reach her. But Annie refused to give up on Helen. She created a system of communication where Annie Sullivan would, would take uh, Helen Keller's hands, her, her small hands, and she would press sign language into her hands so that she could feel the letters. And then she would take her other hand and she would press that hand against whatever she was wanting to communicate. Helen misinterpreted this form of communication and so she pulled back and resisted. And it was a battle of wills between Helen Keller and Annie Sullivan. And Helen proved to be just as stubborn as Annie. And so they went back and forth in this, this dance of communication, if you will. Annie persisting and Helen resisting. Finally, one day, a breakthrough. Annie Sullivan took Helen Keller's hand and she, she put it underneath the, the water spout on the, on the family's property in Alabama. And in the other hand, she signed the letters W-A-T-E-R, water. And Helen pulled back, as she often did, and Annie grabbed her hand and put it back under the water spout and signed again, W-A-T-E-R, water. Finally, in a breakthrough, Helen signed the, the letters back, W-A-T-R, and Annie grabbed young Helen's hands and put them on her cheeks and, and vigorously nodded, yes, water, water. Annie and, and Helen began to, to run around the yard as, as Helen put her hand on the grass and signed G-R-A-S-S, grass, the porch, and she signed out the letters porch, and, and, and this went on and on and on, a breakthrough of communication. Christmas is the story of God's great resolve to communicate, overcoming all obstacles to tell us about his great love. We resisted, God persisted. He refused to allow us to live a life of loneliness, darkness, and despair. Christmas is the story of God breaking through into our darkness with his great light. And this message of Christmas, of, of God overcoming all obstacles and barriers to communicate his love, is a message that's been communicated to God's people long before the very first Christmas. You may be interested to learn that, that these words that we often recite at Christmas time were written some 750 years before the birth of Jesus. 
They were written by a man named Isaiah. And they're found in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Familiar words to many of us about the coming of Christ. For unto us a child is born. For to us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Isaiah was communicating who God wanted to be to each and every one of us, even today. And again, these very words were written some 750 years as a prophecy of who God was going to be among us, of God breaking through, overcoming all obstacles to explain himself to each and every one of us. This one sentence found in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, is going to be the focus of our entire Christmas series here at New City. This one verse is going to be our focus for the entire month. So please mark it in your Bibles, mark it on your phones, because we're going to be looking at it every single week. It marks the, the, the coming of Christ, the, the breakthrough, the communication of God's love to us in our darkness. It's God saying to us, even in our resisting, he persists in his communication. Let me, let me give a little bit of context as we look further into this passage from Isaiah. Who was Isaiah? Let, let's talk about what's going on in the passage and who wrote it. Isaiah was, of course, a prophet. A prophet's job, you've heard that word before, a prophet. A prophet's job was to speak on behalf of God to God's people. To speak on behalf of God to God's people. That was the job of a prophet. Maybe you've heard the word priest. The job or the role of a priest was to speak on behalf of God's people to God. So the priest would take the, the confessions, uh, all, all of the things of God, the, the, the things from God's people, the words from God's people, all of their things, and he would be the intercessory to, to God himself. He would be the one who represents them. A prophet would do just the opposite. He would represent God himself to God's people. Isaiah was a prophet. And interestingly, Isaiah, who wrote our Christmas passage here, Isaiah's name itself means Jehovah saves. Yahweh saves. The one true God saves. And boy, did Isaiah live up to his name. That was his entire message. His entire prophecy could be encapsulated in those words, Jehovah saves. God is the one who saves, not ourselves. Isaiah was known as the chief of all Old Testament prophets. He was a, a major prophet, if you will. In fact, some commentators have referred to Isaiah as the Paul of the Old Testament. He was that influential. His book, The Prophecy of Isaiah, is rich with the presence of God, the very story of God, and the story of salvation to us. According to some, the, the book of Isaiah really is the Bible in miniature. You could read the book of Isaiah and you could get a theme or a feel for the rest of the Bible, the, the full counsel of God now, all 66 books. There are two major themes in Isaiah and there are two major themes or movements in the scriptures that we need to understand. The first is the judgment of God on a rebellious people, a people who refuse and resist the communication of God, the love of God, the mercy of God. It's God as judge, righteous judge and ruler. But the second theme in Isaiah and the theme throughout all the scriptures is the same God who is full of compassion and mercy 
and a God who gives hope to hopeless people like us. Aren't you glad? Isaiah's view of God is equally comprehensive. God is both judge who decrees decrees destruction on a rebellious people like us, but he is also a compassionate redeemer who, again, refuses to cast off a hopeless people like us. So zooming in a little further to Isaiah chapter 9, and if you have your Bibles, turn there with me. Isaiah is prophesying to Israel. Israel is, of course, the name of God's people, his nation. And Isaiah's prophecy specifically is the rebuke here in chapter 9 for his people not trusting him, not listening to him, not obeying him, resisting his communication. And we catch a glimpse here of what happens to a a people, specifically here to, uh, to, to Israel, when they refuse to trust and obey God, when they refuse to look to God and instead look to themselves. Because what's happening here in context is the people of God, Israel, are fearing other people. They're fearing other nations. They're fearing circumstances, and they're not fearing God himself. And here's the deal. When we look, don't look to God, when we don't look rightly to God, we look to ourselves. And we look to other people, don't we? And we look to our circumstances. And because Israel had taken their gaze off of their one true God, they had begun to gaze at themselves and other people. Namely, here in our passage, they're looking at other nations that threatened to overtake them. Specifically, Assyria, who had already taken different territories of Israel itself, and they're terrified. But they refuse to listen to God. And here's the glimpse that we get of what happens when people refuse to listen and to trust God. Look at Isaiah chapter 8, verse 22. It's the final verse in the preceding chapter of our Christmas text. Isaiah 8, 22. Isaiah gives a picture of what it means to continue to reject and refuse to listen to the God that loves us. He writes these words. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. God's people have God's word here in this context. Even 750 years before the coming of Jesus, they have the Torah and they have the prophets. God communicating to his people and his people refusing, pulling their hands back, refusing to listen. And so Isaiah gives a glimpse of what it's going to be like for a people who continues to refuse and rebel against God. And he captures that in one verse, Isaiah 8, 22. Listen to some of these words. They look to the earth. It gives them distress. They're filled with darkness. And then this phrase, the gloom of anguish. And they're going to be thrust into thick darkness. What Isaiah is describing here, please don't miss it, friends. What Isaiah is describing is hell on earth. Hell is a literal place. It's a place without light. It's a place without hope. Hell is a place without Christ. The existence of hell is the existence of a place without Christ at all. And Isaiah is describing that for us in vivid detail with these words, distress, darkness, gloom, anguish, thick darkness. You say, Chris, we're off to a great start with our Christmas series here. (laughs) This feels great. 
You cannot know the light that is Christ until you know the dark that is you. Until we recognize the darkness that we would be in without Christ, we'll never understand and appreciate the light that is Christ. What Isaiah is communicating here is left unto ourselves, this is the result. It's a people that should be pitied. It's a people without hope. It's a people left in their own darkness. But everything changes in chapter 9 and everything changes for us with one single word. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1, the very first word, one of the great conjunctions in the Bible. Nevertheless, the gospel in one word, nevertheless. All of this is true, Isaiah is saying. Chapter 8, 22, all of it's true. The gloom, the despair, the destruction, the disappointment, all of this is true. Nevertheless, nevertheless, hear these words, verses 1 through 3, Isaiah 9. Nevertheless, there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. And the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Where was Jesus' headquarters? Galilee. Verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Despite choosing choosing their own way, despite trusting in themselves over and over again, despite resisting the communication of God, Nevertheless, God does not give up on his people. And God doesn't give up on you. Aren't you glad for that? Nevertheless, add your list, make your list of all your disappointments, your despairs, the things that distress you, the things of darkness even in your own life. And then one word changes everything for you and for me. Nevertheless, God didn't give up on you. You may have given up on yourself. You may have walked in here today wanting to give up, but God refuses to give up on you. Paul said it this way. He said, even when we are faithless, he is faithful because he can't deny himself in us. God refuses to give up on his people. And this is grace. The very message of grace is seen here in Isaiah The very places that have been conquered, the places that the enemy has taken ground, maybe Zebulun and Naphtali don't mean anything to you, but what you need to know in this passage, they would have meant everything to Israel, God's people. These two specific places that are mentioned in Isaiah 9 verse 1 were tribal territories in the northern part of the country, and they had been conquered by Assyria. And what God is saying to his people is the very places and the very things that the enemy has stolen from you, I'm going to restore. The very places in your life and in your heart that that are filled with darkness and despair and gloom, I'm coming there first. So I don't know what that represents for you today. 
But the place in your heart and your life that is filled with the most distress and gloom and anguish and darkness and pain and disappointment, that's where God wants to come to first. That's where God is desperate to communicate his unending, unfailing, unrelenting mercy and love and grace for you. That's the message of Christmas is God refusing to give up on us. And so we see these great words in verses 2 and 3 of, of light shining in darkness, of, of a nation being multiplied. No longer are they a faithful remnant. They're a, they're a nation of people who are built up, fulfilling the promise that was given to Abraham in Genesis 12, that your descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars in the heavens. And then this wonderful word appears here in verse 2. The word is joy. You're going to have joy as, as the harvest spoils are divided, you're going to have that kind of joy. It continues in verse 3. You're going to have joy as everything is multiplied in your life. God's going to give you blessings. God's going to give you comfort, not because of what you've done, but because of his great grace and mercy towards you. Joy is something that no one else can steal from you, friend. Happiness is something that is temporary and based on your circumstances. And God doesn't say, I'm going to come so you can be happy. He says, I'm going to come so that you might have joy. Joy is a condition of the heart based on what God has done. Happiness is a condition of emotion based on circumstances and other people. That's why the angel said to the shepherd, good tidings, good news we bring to you this day of great happiness, great joy. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. You're going to have Christ himself, God with you. So here's the question. What have the people of God here in Isaiah, and what have we, more importantly, what have we done to deserve this kind of joy, this kind of love, this light, this grace that's been given to us? What has, what has Israel, what have we done to deserve it? Nothing. And that's grace. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. That's what mercy is. And certainly God is merciful. We deserved Isaiah 8.22. We deserved gloom and despair, destruction. We deserved to be left unto ourselves because we pulled our hands back and refused to listen to God's love. That's what we deserve, is to be left unto ourselves, living in a land and a life of darkness and despair. That's what we deserved. We deserved hell itself for the punishment of our sins and rebellion. That's what we deserved. And we don't get it because God is merciful. But it gets even better, friends. God is also gracious, and the word grace means getting what you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. So not only are we spared punishment, separation, eternal pain, and darkness, we are given love and joy and victory and Jesus himself. We are adopted as sons and daughters of the Most High King. We are rightly restored as the crown of God's creation, not because of anything that we've done, but because we are the objects of God's great love and mercy. And he refused to give up on us. When we were running the other way, giving God the Heisman, stiff-arming him, 
God came running after us. Paul said it this way in Romans 5. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Here's the amazing thing about God's love. God knows you best. And that's kind of frightening, if we're honest. God knows you better than you know yourself. So the things that you're hiding right now, and we all try to hide, the things that you're hiding from other people and even from your own self, God knows. God knows you best. And here's the thing about grace that's so amazing. God knows you best and God loves you most. The one who knows you best loves you most. God is loving his people in spite of themselves, in spite of their rebellion. God's light refuses to be conquered by darkness. How is God going to do this? How is God going to break through his light into darkness? How is God going to give us victory where we've been conquered by the enemy in different places of our life? in our marriages, in our parenting, and and the ways that we blow it over and over and over again. How is God going to break through? How is God not only going to be merciful, not getting what we deserve, but gracious, getting what we don't deserve? How is he going to adopt us into his family, restoring us as the crown of his creation? How is God going to do all this? I'm glad you asked. Isaiah 9, verses 4 through 6. These three verses, Isaiah 9, 4, 5, and 6, you'll notice something about them in your Bibles. They all begin with the same conjunction. The same Hebrew word, ki. The word can be translated and or for. It can also be translated, I think, very aptly. We could supply the word here, because. Because the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Because God has delivered us from our oppressors. That's what Isaiah says. And he says, because God, this coming Messiah, who's going to be with us, has brought an end to all wars. That's how we can know light and love and mercy and grace. Every boot of the trampling warrior and battle tumult, every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Every battle cry, Isaiah says, every bloodied garment that, that, was, that was stained with the battles of men, it'll be ended and all the, the weapons of war will be destroyed and burned in the fire. Don't you look forward to that day? No more war, no more battle, no more destruction between mankind. How how is this possible? How is this going to happen? The ultimate answer is found in verse 6. Again, here's the word because. Because God has delivered us from oppression. Because he's brought an end to the war. And ultimately, because unto us a child is born. Because to us a son is going to be given and the government will be upon his shoulder and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Because God is sending his very son to us, that's how all of this will be accomplished and that's the message of Christmas. God breaking through into our world. C.S. Lewis said Christmas can be described simply this way. That the Son of God became a man so that men could become sons of God. 
The Son of God became a man so that men and women could become sons and daughters of the Most High God. We resisted, and if we're honest today, many of us still resist. We pull our hands back as God tries to communicate to us with his in persistence and in, and in love to continue to show us and demonstrate to us his great love and mercy and grace. But God continues to persist, even in our rebellion, even in our resistance. And this is the miracle that is the love of God. And so Isaiah can't help but describe who God is going to be to us. Emmanuel, God with us. And his royal titles that he deserves because who he came to be for us. And we'll take the rest of this month describing who Jesus came to be to us. How he wanted to communicate himself to us as wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and the prince of peace. The miracle of Christmas is this. For unto us a child is born. So we are not left unto ourselves. The miracle of Christmas is this. For unto us, for unto you, a child is born. Christ came for you so that you're not left unto yourself. In your darkness, your gloom, your despair, your depression, your anguish, whatever you might be carrying today, God came so that you don't have to live in that anymore. To him alone be the glory. Amen. Let's pray together. The evangelist John said that to as many who would receive Jesus, this child, this son who was given to us, who was born unto us, to as many as who would receive him and who would believe in his name, he would give the right the right to be a child of God, John 1.12. For those of you here today and who are watching who would say, I know I'm not a Christian. I haven't received this great light that has dawned in my life, that's come for me. I, I haven't received the gift that is Jesus. I'm still living in my own darkness, my despair, my gloom, my grief, my anguish. I'm not sure that I know Jesus and I want to be. If that's your desire, if that's your heart, I would invite you to pray this prayer with me today. Heavenly Father, I do believe that Jesus Christ is your son and that he died on the cross to save me, to save me from my sins. I believe that he also rose from the dead in victory over death and invites me now to be a part of, of his forever family. Because of what Jesus has done, I ask you to forgive me of my sins and give me eternal life. I invite you today into my heart and into my life. I want to trust you, Jesus, as my Savior, and I want to follow you as my Lord. So give me the courage today to live my life not for myself anymore, but for you and for your glory. Father, thank you for loving each of us so much.
that you refused to leave us to ourselves. You gave us your only son, and that changed everything. Give us the wisdom today to know what you're speaking to each of us individually. And now give us the courage and the faith to obey for your glory. Amen.